Welcome to our classroom. In this space, we talk about education, which is inclusive of, but not limited to, what happens in schools. Education is taking place whenever and wherever we are willing to learn. I am your host, Roberto Germán, and our classroom is officially in session. Check it. Back in November 23rd, 2021, I was invited to participate on a virtual panel regarding colorism in the Latino, Latina, Latina community. It was presented by AP for All NYC, hosted by Marisol Manriquez Weiner and Dr. Akua Kisiwa Adefope. It featured Dr. Gloria Rosario Wallace who is educator, scholar, activist, and executive director of strategy and implementation, chief strategy office, NYC Department of Education, Rosa Bell, founder, PLC Culture and Diversity, and also was teacher of the year, Spanish teacher of the year in Hawaii, and Dr. Soribel Henao. Equity and Evaluation Consultant, Diversity and Inclusion Facilitator, Professor of Ed Leadership, CUNY, that's in New York. And this was a great panel. I want to share an excerpt today from that panel. It's a, quite a portion of that event, but not the whole thing. So we dug in really had some honest conversations and it was good to hear from some of my colleagues these individuals i had met for the first time but they had very similar experiences so and i just wanted to introduce and sorry for distracting before um roberto germán and um, welcome we already introduced your bio and just ask you if you can just jump in this question and take two minutes or whatever you want at this point is fine. <laughs> um, how does racism and discrimination toward Afro and indigenous Latinos differ in Latin America and the United States? And if you want to share that and or your experiences, uh, Roberto, thank you. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for the welcome. Uh, apologies for my delay here. I had some technical issues. Uh, the virtual world is a different space than being present, but thank you, uh, everybody, for being here. Glad that I could join you. Uh, I'll, I'll be brief, and I'll try not to reiterate too much of uh, what my colleagues, my peers, have stated. Um, I think they've summed it up pretty well in terms of how racism and discrimination towards Afro and Indigenous uh, impact or differ in Latino America and United States. And from my perspective, uh, I, I think the difference really lies in how, how we understand um, and to some extent how we experience it here in the United States. And my family's from the Dominican Republic, by the way. Um, and so thinking about it, I, I think it's more about um, the way we talk about it here uh, the level of awareness and education, right? Even though it's still a major issue here, uh, I would say compared to some of the other places I've been, uh, there is still a, a lot greater understanding at least um, that this is truly prevalent. Um, whereas, I, you know, there's certain things that you'll witness and I'm thinking about, you know, you might go by the tourist shops 
in Santo Domingo, Samana, some of the places on the island, right? You see, you go by tourist shops and you see certain dolls, for example, and you'll see dolls that you could associate with like minstrel shows, right? You, you know, I can't really think off the top of my head where you would see that here in the United States. If that comes up here, you know, it's going to be a problem. Uh, we we going to amplify that big time. Uh, over there, that's, you know, you still come across that. And for many people, that's a normal thing. Now, we come across it over there. And we're like, whoa. Uh, and we should be, right? We should be. But we got to understand the context and, and that in that environment, in those places, um, there's, there's not the same. While it's growing, I will say it's growing. The awareness and understanding is increasing uh, due to greater worldwide connections and technology, right? There's so many things you could access on the internet. And there's people who are bringing back their experiences and starting movements uh, over there to really encourage folks to embrace themselves. I think about Miss Rizos and what she's doing with the natural hair movement, my friend Jamie Medina and what she's doing with the natural hair movement, right? And we could talk, this, this could be a panel about Dominican hair, right? Just hair, like, and the hair straightening and all that. Uh, and then we could get into the product, like the 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 um, skin whitening products, right? That's a whole nother panel. But I digress. Um, in terms of my personal experiences, uh, I'll just name one very quickly. Uh, and this one's an easy one to name because I anticipate going back to Republica Dominicana soon. And you know, that's that's the country of my heritage, right? My parents immigrated from there, so I have a lot of love. But at the same time, we have some tension because when I go, you know, I'm a, I could feel it in my body already, which is like my experience going through the airport, dealing with customs, you know, like, unfortunately, I have had some distasteful experiences with customs in the Dominican Republic. And there's absolutely no doubt in my mind that it's tied to the way I am perceived. So yo le puedo tirar con todo y, you know, hablar mi super dominicano, right? You know, speak to them in super Dominican verbiage and whatnot, pero it doesn't change the way they view me. I go with my tight jeans and my shoes with no socks and all that, and it won't change, unfortunately. I've tried these things. Uh, it, it doesn't change the way I'm perceived. There's something... It, you know, there's just something in the minds of many, not all, uh, but many of the Dominican people as it relates to anti-Blackness, right? The, that Those sentiments. Uh, and then again, as it relates to colorism, um, surely, uh, you know, I've had some side-by-side -side experiences where folks who are lighter skinned than me did not receive the same type of treatment in terms of being brought to the back, being um, <laughs> interrogated having to wait there an hour and a half, two hours before being released, so on and so forth. Wow. <laughs> Thank you so much, guys. Um, let's go to the next question and really two minutes or whatever minutes you feel, that's okay. So third question, uh, and by the way, if uh, you have questions for the panelists, please put them in the chat. Now the chat is uh, closed only for the co-facilitators, so we can ask them at the end. So the third question, uh, how do you see your role in working towards social and racial justice within the Latino community? And what is your ask from white, white Latinos co-conspirators like me and some others that are here? 
Well, I'm, I'm going to start with this because um, this is a shameless plug um, for me. Um, so Nakia Gray Reynolds, uh, um, Nakia Gray Nicholas is my colleague and also on the on here, um, her and I wrote a book, Rebuilding by Multilingual Leaders for Socially Just Communities. Um, and although that work speaks from an academic perspective, it truly speaks from the experience of teacher leaders. Um, so I was fortunate enough to work with teachers who wanted to be um, school leaders and, and really more community mobilized organizers in those communities who were not just Spanish speaking or Chinese speaking, right? We understood that there was a need for Bangla, Haitian Creole and Farsi in New York City. And we needed to have more of those experiences. But to um, the what Gloria and Roberto were talking about and in, in, in the chat, right? Also um, coming from a parent that is, a, my, one of my parents is Dominican, one is Haitian. So I live the history of what our Dominican Republic has unfortunately um, kept kind of alive in terms of the, the racism and the, the lack of um, forward thinking and forward movements. Like Roberto, I had, I had not been to the Dominican Republic since 2013 and I went back last year and it was horrible. It was a horrible experience. Um, not because, um, I didn't, I didn't want to see the, the asset-based thinking movement with a new leadership in office, but because it was very clear that not is it just that the curriculums at schools are still needing a lot of rebuilding, but the way that there is this disconnect with this idea that history has to continue the way it is, that there is this amplified and magnified voice over colorism more than anything, because I was with a Haitian family that looks just like me and speaks just Spanish, just like fellow Dominicans, but because they were lighter skinned, they were treated much better. And yet there was a black family that whose social wealth and capital was lateral to that same white family or even more, but immediately they were spoken down to because of colorism. And I, I think of those opportunities, right, um, in having these conversations with white co-conspirators and how they show up and how they too can be a part of these critical conversations um, why it's important to open up and start looking at the ways that they can be part of the solution. Um, when you don't know, ask the questions, don't be wrong and strong. Um, don't give information that perhaps you heard elsewhere and really do the work and, and don't feel as if you have to be a part of every single conversation. It's much more important to be an active listener than to be someone that just wants to be heard. So, yeah, thank you once again, ditto. And so I think, I think for my bio, so obviously this is the work I'm uh, deeply engaged in the New York City Department of Education with school leaders and district leaders and yada yada. But for me, what's even a little bit more important is my role as a parent and my role as just uh, a friend and a human being. So 
something I learned from, and I'm not in the habit of really asking white people for anything. I don't ever really do that because I think everyone, like, as I heard somebody had to say, do the work, right? But the work is very individualized. It is differentiated. I don't think it is for me to tell you what to do, but the thing that I will offer as, an, as something to think about, um, and Dr. Kayla Story, she's an associate professor in the University of Louisville, Louisville in Kentucky. She uh, did this talk where she broke up like the difference between an ally and a co-conspirator. And from and she affirmed so many things I had always felt. I always felt like it was kind of icky. I was like, an ally? What does that actually mean? Like, like a friend? Like, am I just saying I'm gonna be a friend to all? Um, and I, you know, I felt that way like in high school when I heard the word ally. And in that context, it was uh, I think in like National Coming Out Day and this, this notion of being an ally. I was like, don't people need a little bit more from me? She introduced me to the term of a co-conspirator, right? And for her, the way she defined it and the reason it like stuck to me and I'm offering it in this conversation is that a co-conspirator isn't doing anything for anyone else. A co-conspirator is going back to my community to do the work with my own people. So I, <laughs> I got family that they don't, you know, they don't talk to me right now, right? Because I'm going to speak the truth and I'm going to speak the truth loudly. Um, I've had conversations with my cousins and family who live in the Dominican Republic. I'm like, you don't have a right to tell us what to do. We're a sovereign nation. And I was like, facts, okay. I'm not like emailing the president, but I'm gonna call out a racist policy, just like I would call out a racist policy in the United States. Like everyone's gonna get it, right? Um, so for some of my family, they've engaged and like, well, let me better understand where you're coming from. And some of them have been like, nah, and that's all right, right? So like. The cost of admission is you may lose my, my, my wonderful friendship and, and family-ship. You may lose that if you're not willing to examine how you're complicit in white supremacy. I'm not willing to do that. Um, so I just offer that as language, as what could I walk away from here doing and better understanding? And once again, like kind of tuning my ear a little bit more louder to hear those low-key subtle ways that colorism, anti-Blackness just permeate our everyday conversation from like, when do, you, when do I feel compelled to tell my colleague, oh, your hair looks great. And I only say that in days when they blow it out. Do I acknowledge the beauty of their hair in their natural state? Even if it looks like different than what I'm accustomed, a professional person will look like, whatever, whatever. Am I doing that work with myself? And am I doing that work with my people? That's really all I ever want people to do is work on yourself first. I actually don't need anything from anyone, particularly folks who are still kind of like, who am I in this conversation? If you could figure out who am I, what is my purpose? How can I use whatever leverage I have to be to make this better? Whether it be as a fellow parent in the kindergarten class, like my five-year-old just started this year, or just like as a just as a member of the human race, right? Like, what is it that you can do? And I think that's been since I heard Dr. Story say that, it's been the most valuable kind of learning for me in this space. Wonderful, Gloria. And I, I love the fact that I wait a little bit before answering because you and Soribel have touched important points in which I would like to uh, put a little bit more of azúcar into it, right? So, <laughs> so for me, my role as an educator is to make sure every every year or every semester when I start with new group of students and teaching them the Spanish language, I love to start with self-identity. 
I would like for my students to find out themselves, who they are, where they come from. So they can uh, appreciate the value of, of any other cultures, right? And then from there, they start to develop a unique combination of research and advocacy programs and national network, because I like to have them into real world scenarios in which they can have contacts with other students from all over the world, everywhere, you know, I do just all the research possible and connections so they can experience from other places as well, not just um, because I am here in Hawaii. So it's the limitation of the um, black people here. We are very, very, very minority here in Hawaii and it's more dominant by Asians. So they can start seeing like, just open the eyes for them and see it is, um, discrimination not just for blacks but also for asians for any different uh, races correct so i try to walk them through what is the truth and from there i have them exercise on how they can contribute to let's say to end this problem that we have actually in this century which is amazing right we are so much in technology and all that but the subject of colorings and racism and um racial equity and you know, still be something like it was just yesterday, if we look back in, in story, in history. So a student needs to understand what racist is and then trying to find a bias to uh, end on their side. And believe me that if we all set up our minds into make a more effort to have this change through what we offer in the student, which is education, we can get to a good numbers of uh, differences and changes in our life and their future as well because it directly impacts all part of, our, of their lives and our life, and we need to understand. My thing is to call all Latinos, regardless of color, especially the ones that are light-skinned or white, they need to represent an accurate understanding of contributions of the all of Hispanics and the systematic barriers they face regardless of their skin color. If we continue calling ourselves and label ourselves just to define someone instead of say one black, then it's not, it's not gonna end because it's like we're finding excuses in between ourselves, how we're gonna call each other just to be accept or to feed in the world. And what we're doing is to transmit directly or indirectly this to our students, or even sometimes what we can say our children's or our neighbor's children's, and then they cannot find themselves where to feed. And they will always constantly have the same problem about where I can feed in this group, where I can fit in another group. For me, this needs to end. It's just a set of mind that if we all educators cooperate and help each other to move forward this um, discriminations by teaching the truth to our students, to expose them to more culture and diversity that we have so big in our Latin community, hopefully this will end sometime soon. That's my hope. Thank you all for sharing. Uh, yeah, so I view my role as um, challenging and encouraging our community to learn from the past, um, to understand what's presently happened, and to, to work towards progress to create a better future for everybody. And so I aim to do that by, by being present and, you know, engaging in courageous conversations. Many of you have probably are probably familiar with that term, right? Um, some of you might be familiar with the text, Courageous Conversations. So, you know, we get it in. We engage in those courageous conversations, try to do so boldly. Um, also try to really engage people in thought and in conversation through 
content creation, through authorship, through through the consulting work that I do through multicultural classroom. Um, in, in terms of what I'd like to see from our co-conspirators, um, like to see them, you know, really advocate because I think advocacy is key. I'd like to see them there to disrupt by by leveraging the privilege and proactively challenging colorism. So stop making jokes and speak up when others make jokes. Uh, intentionally work against colorism by naming it when it happens. Uh, and I'm thinking about certain experiences I've had in the gym playing basketball. And, um, and I have a particular moment in mind where something happens, you know, you know, when you're on the basketball court, all kinds of things happen, right? You know, and guys are trying to compete and win. In the midst of that, you know, somebody made a comment that really rubbed me the wrong way. And it was, uh, Maldito Haitiano, directed to a dark-skinned Dominican. And, you know, I, I, I've served as director of multicultural affairs for several years at a few different schools. And so if I'm being honest with you, sometimes I just want to turn the switch off. Uh, and that was one of those moments where I just wanted to turn the switch off. And I'm like, oh, man, I'm just, I just wanted to play basketball. Um, but, you know, it's, it's hard to ignore that stuff, right? And if I'm going to call others out for their impassivity, then I got to hold myself to the same standard. And, and so, I, you know, I had responded and addressed the dude that made the comment and say, pero que lo que tu significa? Eh, que lo que tu quieres decir con eso? Like, well, you know, what, what, what are you trying to say? What are, you, what are you trying to communicate? Y por qué? And why? You know? Y como tu sabes que yo no soy adiano? How do you know I'm not Haitian? Uh, I'm Dominican, but I got Haitian family members. Uh, and even if I didn't, it would still bother me. It would still rub me the wrong way. I also let them know that I thought it was... Uh, I thought it was a poor representation for himself as an individual, but also for us as a people, as Dominicans. And he, he received it. He accepted. Now, those conversations don't always go that way, being straight up. Uh, it, it doesn't it's not always necessarily received well. Uh, yet we, we have to engage in those conversations. And so uh, but I don't think we the only ones to engage in those conversations. That's I think our co-conspirators have to, uh, you know, step in, lean into it with the same type of willingness and the same type of boldness. Thank you so much. We are hearing you and we will do. Um, but I'm gonna ask this question. It says, um, explain the origin and the context of colorism in the Latino, Latina, Latina community. Um, how would you describe the level of awareness of colorism? within that community? I think we may have asked a similar question, but I'll repeat it again. Um, so it's, um, and this to the panelists, explain uh, the origin and context of colorism in the Latina, Latino, Latine um, community. How will you describe the level of awareness of colorism within that community? I know that might be a little challenging, but I will give you some time to Take a poke at it if you, you would like to. Thank you for that question. So I will, I'll, I'll take a stab at it. I think this question is, um, is a pertinent one because 
it's it it varies right and uh, the way that i look at it is it depends where you are in your journey it depends who you are where you come from how involved you've been in in doing that therapeutic work and and by that i mean our lineages are not as privileged as we are right here in these texts right the fact that we have access to this conversation is mind-blowing um i can say that even two generations back in my personal fam in my personal experience with my own families um my Haitian side sometimes has a lot more work to do than my Dominican side. And the reason for that is because although we are the first Black Republic, there is a lot of subconscious influence of what the French have done. Like there are some parts of Capaisien where my father's family is from where they when they see white people show up they immediately turn off the crayon and everybody all of a sudden only speaks french and it is mind-boggling to me where you know i have had the conversations a very difficult and to um, roberto's point again the complicated conversations with my dominican side about their racist acts and many of them are just like wait i didn't know that that was racist and it takes a lot of these unpacking of these implicit and microaggressive ways for them to be called out with love at times. And then you have the ignorant ones that are just like, no, because I said so. And it's just like, all right, then stay in your corner saying that, right? Because you're, you're, you and your crew are going to be very successful when changes continue to happen. Um, and I think about the level of awareness um, it's access, right? Access to information, access to acceptance, access to growth, right? There is this growth mindset versus fixed mindset that even those terminologies, again, it's about access. Like I didn't know that until I became much more educated. And how do we then also tell our families in the bush, like, oh, you need to change your mindset, right? And they're just like, well, why? <laughs> what, what am I gonna do that for? And, and it's very similar to our own families and communities in our schools. Um, I say this because unfortunately we have some cases where some students never leave their zip codes. Right. And for you to tell them that they now have to speak a certain way or get down a certain way when they don't know anything else, um, that's that's a harsh reality and lots of responsibility to be put on people or person who's not even aware of what's beyond the next community over. I think about my neighborhood in Flatbush, Brooklyn, right? I, it's, it's what I know, it's what I've known forever. Um, but get, you know, it's like going from where I'm from in Flatbush to going to now what's now Park Slope. It's just like this, this is sometimes a little bit heartbreaking because all it takes is for me to cross the street and see that the buildings change and the communities change. Um, and that bodegas are not as available, um, but it is that that constant awareness and the context of colorism, it, it again, it depends. And I've seen it happen where you can have the conversation with somebody who's probably not as educated, but much more open than somebody who is very educated and still not open because 
that fixed mindset is blocking their ability to get more information. Thank you. Thank you for that. Um, there's a question for Rosa, unless um, one of the panelists want to add to sort of the Bell's response. Thank you for that. Um, I'll probably just go ahead, Marisol, and ask the next question. Yeah, Dr. B, I would like to ask one more, uh, and then I give the word to you. How about this? If you want to share, what resources can educators use to educate themselves and guide them in supporting students' experience in the classroom? Uh, if there's anything you want to share, I know that we already have uh, my colleague David will, uh, when uh, Rosa and Roberto speak, they will put your show your websites. But also if Gloria and Soribel want to put anything in the chat or talk about that, that is the question. What resources uh, or in what initiatives are you currently involved regarding this topic, if you want to answer. Thank you, Marisol. Um, well, I strongly believe that incorporating more culture in their classes is a good way to start educating students about the colorings in the Latino community. So I have created a professional learning community of educators group called Culture and Diversity, which I uh, have uh, uh, constantly inviting educators and other professionals to share and their cultural experiences and how they can be used in their classroom. The goal here is to break down the barriers to racial equity, I'm sorry, and to prepare every student to succeed in a diverse of independent world. Remember always that culture is what we are and teaching tolerance and respect has long-term implications. So it is time for uh, to start as an educator. Uh, I don't know if we got parents here as well, why not? But um, this community that I have created so far, I know it has been calling attentions to many, many, many educators because most of them say, well, I didn't even know how to start this or how I'm going to talk about tolerance if I am uh, uh, Caucasian or, or any race. So we help each other in, in my group to bring over um, innovations or a variation of how to introduce culture and diversity in the classes. So this is how I'm doing as uh, so of right now. Thank you very much for sharing my link uh, and my page. And pretty soon we're going to be also in YouTube, in which is going to bring us more uh, information and more panelists. And hopefully one day have a beautiful one like you have, like that. So big in there. And we have the support of the community as well, because sometimes we as a teacher, we just stay in these four walls and look out there for the community. There are a lot of people um, waiting to help groups like the ones that we are talking today and grow. I found down also uh, in my community, we have, a, 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 I would say a channel that is a nonprofit organization channel that is actually now helping me with interviews and, and also let me use their studios. So they look more professional, more interesting. And then now I can cover uh, all Hawaii. And of course, that's why we're going to open the YouTube to extend our our um, channels and our interviews in nationwide. Thank you. Yeah, so I'll add that um, <clears throat> great resources, Learning for Justice, formerly known as Teaching Tolerance. Uh, I think you'll find uh, a plethora of things that you can bring into the classroom. Um, certainly, you know, I'm gonna plug what we do here at Multicultural Classroom uh, and thinking about the um, 
the question. So I'm working on publishing a series of poems that are centered around identity and culture and address a lot of this stuff. Um, I, I, I shared a poem on Rosa's platform recently called Yo Soy Un Platano, because, you know, ya tu sabes, soy dominicano. Um, <laughs> but, but I have poems that, that dive more in depth into these issues, racism, colorism, so on and so forth. Uh, one of them that comes to mind is Black Denial. Um, and it's, it's centered around, you know, my Dominican experience. And so for me as, as a creator, as, as, as somebody who's, um, who's into writing and, and likes to address these issues, but in different ways, um, certainly I do it in the, you know, kind of the more formal ways of doing trainings and professional development and so on and so forth. But sometimes it's good to use the arts to engage people in this conversation. Um, for some people, it's, it's just a different way that allows them to lean into it more. And so like using poetry, rap music, um, creating videos, um, and I will be creating a series of videos to, to complement the book that I'll be publishing in March. Um, so um, thank you for putting up the website. See it there now. Uh, Multicultural Classroom. You could uh, check out the stuff that we've already published, uh, Lorena's um, the anti-racist teacher reading instruction workbook, which geared towards English instructors, but really like the, the concepts apply for everybody. And Texture Teaching, a framework for culturally sustaining pedagogies, check that out. And then uh, started a podcast and we're talking about this stuff also. So uh, check it out when you have time. Uh, you know, I, I think there, there are so many resources that are available. Um, when you go to Instagram, you see some of the work that folks are doing, um, like the Anti-Racist Now is one of the Instagram pages I follow and, and others. Uh, there's a lot of things that are available to us that leave us with little to no excuses uh, as to, you know, why we're not accessing more resources. So uh, thank you. I'll stop. Um, thank you. I was like taking notes when both of you were talking. Um, so I work for the Department of Education. So I don't, <laughs> so, you know, if you know, you know, if you work, <laughs> if you work at NYCTOE, I definitely, I mean, I have so much love for OEA and I miss being a part of the Office of Equity and Access, but this was essentially our work in the Office of Equity and Access. And um, so I think if any like teachers or school communities are interested in like, having these conversations, my, my personal passion has always been within, um, I always say like in the middle of the spectrum, because a lot of the conversations we have within Latinidad is also very relevant for our Asian cousins, is also very relevant um, for a multiracial, biracial, bicultural, multicultural folks of like, what's the work I have to do? So when I looked at the question, and thank you for putting in the chat, I take a little... <laughs> I'm sorry to be this person, but I have an issue with the question. Like, as an educator, I don't need to be thinking about my kids if I still haven't done my own work. Because I cannot tell you how many times I had to sit through in the time of the butterflies with some person who knew nothing about the Dominican Republic and was wild racist. Please don't make me read a book and be wild racist in my face. So please pause on bringing your students into the conversations if you have not done your work. And when I say your work, that means where are you from? Do you know the history of where you're from? And I know these are heavy questions because I am not a um, scholar of Dominican history as my family will tell me because they all born and raised there, went to school there, read all the books. 
their Spanish is perfect. Mine's is Washington Heights. This is who I am, right? So I do the work that I can. Um, and I'm not saying become a, a secondary scholar. I'm not saying get another master's. I'm not saying get a doctorate, but know, have some knowledge of self. Where are you from? So I was raised by folks who survived a dictatorship. My parents are older. My father was older. He passed away when I was in high school. So my mother, on all her national um, documentation, could never check off Black. It wasn't even an option, right? And the violence that she saw as a young girl, like I know that forever shaped her. And then that shaped how she raised us. Like that's my personal, local, personal, immediate context that helped me better understand, okay, why is everybody so weird when we talk about race? Okay, now I have more context. Um, so if you are one of those folks, you've already done the work, you already have some knowledge of self, you already like recognize what are your triggers, what are the things that make you feel, Ugh, this is a little uncomfortable, great, right? And like continue to be curious about your own experience. And then you can create this neutral space for young people to enter. But if we don't do that, if we are not centered, if we don't recognize how we are compl complicit with white supremacy, with capitalism, with patriarchy, and how they work together to keep this foot on our neck, then we're not, the lesson is never gonna hit in the way you want it to. So I always push for folks to do the self-work first, and then let's talk about the kids. Then we can talk about the kids. But what is your work first? And I know that that's hard. I recognize that it's hard. It took me years to be able to, to talk about this and to recognize what is who am I in this conversation. In the chat, I shared a conference that I, I'm going to. I haven't left my house, but I'm still saying I'm going to Houston in April. So like, if you're a praying person, pray for me or light a candle. I'm very anxious. I have not, I really am anxious about traveling, but I will go to the birthplace of Beyonce in Houston, Texas. Uh, April 27th is the Latinx Summit for Courageous Conversations about Race. Um, Roberto had mentioned uh, the, the text, Courageous Conversations about Race, right? So that group, Pacific Education Group, uh, they have a national summit every year and they also have for everyone and they also have one specific on uh, Latinidad, right? And that's been an excellent resource for me because what it does, it brings scholars from around say the country and even internationally to specifically talk about race within Latinidad, to be critical about Latinidad. Who are we including? Who are we excluding? What is coming up? Um, and I think that's a critical part of that self-work before you can do the curriculum lesson planning for others, right? Um, so I put that in the chat. I don't think registration's open yet, but I think it's like pending. By the end of the month, registration should happen. Uh, last year was virtual, this year is in person. Uh, so that's something that could be an option for folks who are interested. And once again, even though I don't work in the Office of Equity and Access, you have access, Marisol, you have access to Dr. B, that means you have access to me. So if there are requests, if there are more conversations, my school is talking about, ba 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 ba. Um, and I, I'll be honest, I'm not going to help you with a book club. Like, I'm not going to do that. But if you're ready to like do the work, like talk about it, if you want to read and talk and do, I'm more than happy to give my time, but I'm not, I'm not doing book clubs anymore. That's a personal goal of mine. <laughs> well, my people, that's all for this episode. Hope you enjoyed this portion, this excerpt of the virtual panel regarding colorism in the Latino, Latina, Latina community. Again, presented by AP for All NYC, hosted by Marisol Manrique Swiner and Dr. Akua Kisiwa Adufape. 
And shout out to Dr. Gloria Rosario Wallace, Rosa Bell, and Dr. Soriel Henao. Until next time. As always, your engagement in our classroom is greatly appreciated. Be sure to subscribe, rate the show, and write a review. Finally, for resources to help you understand the intersection of race, bias, education, and society, go to multiculturalclassroom.com. Peace and love from your host, Roberto Germán.